You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. This is episode 36 of Sprogcast and today we're talking about continuity of carer. We've discussed it many times, but we really wanted to focus on it. So we're chatting with midwife Michaela Marling about her campaign. And we've got a lovely birth story that really illustrates the point. I'm Karen Hall and he's Mark Harris. This broadcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specializing in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction. And they're at pinterandmartin.com. Don't forget, we've got a discount code with Pinter and Martin. If you use the word Sprogcast at the checkout, they give you 10% off and delivery is always free. And they've got a new book out in the Why It Matters series, which is from Natalie Meddings, who you've heard us talk about before. And Natalie has written Why Home Birth Matters. Is that series ever going to end, Martin? Not that it's a bad series, it's a good series, so maybe it will never end. It is a good series. I I, I spent quite a significant amount of time thinking about other other titles that could be in that series. Yeah, go on. It's difficult because they've done so many good ones already. Well, tell me about your top three. Oh, I'm not sure off the top of my head I've got a top oh, three. Oh, come on. Come on. Top of your head, I have. Go on then. Rebecca Schiller. She's done one. That's what I mean. I'm just talking about my current. Oh, I thought you meant of. Um, no, I'm going to tell you my current ideas. Go on then. Rebecca Schiller. Yeah. Mia Scotland. Yeah. And that, Matt McMahon. That Mia's, Mia's is just. I mean, Rebecca's such an important subject, and I like that book being. Rebecca's book, just for the appendices only, should be in the back pocket of every midwife and every birth worker. Yeah. It, it's a fantastic book. Um, Mia's is is great, but my problem with Mia's is that it's broader than its title, and I think that it might, um, it could reach more people had it had something. I don't know what its title should have been. You know, that's funny. You should say that because Mia thinks that herself. Well, I've said it to her. <laughs> Maybe you gave her the thought, but she's she's writing another book at the minute. I don't know whether it will be in the series, but it's kind of dealing uh, more specifically with uh, birth-related trauma. Hmm. I just think that book should be, it's useful for everybody. Me too. And and um, Maddie's book, um, I like a lot because of how it places the role of a doula. Um, it kind of it, it embeds it inside a relationship. Yeah, it's a great format for getting information across really easily to people who wouldn't necessarily pick up a great big tome. There are some in the series I think, oh God, the world just didn't need another one of those. But that's the difficulty, I think, with any book about anything in this area, birthing, parenting, the whole thing. It's it's really hard to come up with something original. I think there are different ways of looking at stuff, seeing stuff, different perspectives. You know, sometimes, you know, if I'm reading a book and I'm finding it hard going, I'll carry on reading the book because I have a sense that I'm finding it hard going because it's confronting some of my um, biases. I often find that it's hard going just because it's not very well written. Yeah, well, yeah, they're that too. But it, it's that, that too. But but sometimes there are opinions that I seek out to read that I know I'm going to disagree with mm. um, because of the whole phenomena of cognitive bias. I do that because I think then I can write a funny blog post about it. 
Yeah, well, you're a sceptic anyway. <laughs> I'm really interested in what other titles should be in the series. If anyone has any suggestions... Then Martin please. would be happy to hear them. <laughs> well, I'd like it on the website. I mean, I like the idea of what, what people feel so important. There's got to be some room for something around attachment and brain development. Babies. What are you going to call that? Why attachment and brain development? Snappy, isn't it? <laughs> what about placenta encapsulation? Why it matters? Is there a whole book worth of that? I don't know. Maybe well, you could... Anyway, Karen, how are you? I'm all right. I've got lots on, it, as always. You always have. I, I, I can't wait for the month when I say, how are you, Karen? And you say, nah, just chilled. Kicking yeah, back. maybe next month. <laughs> well, what are you doing then? Um, I've got a new job with um, some, some extra paid hours with NCT as a baby cafe trainer. So I'm visiting the, the baby cafes around the country and kind of checking they're doing all right. So Baby Cafe is an an umbrella organisation for a a brand of breastfeeding support group. A brand of breastfeeding? You are funny. Your your use of language today is intriguing. Why is that? A brand brand of breastfeeding support group. What does that mean? It means it's branded as Baby Cafe and they have Baby Cafe logo on, which I think is what brand normally does mean. The idea that breastfeeding support can be branded. Well, I suppose it's like um, there, there are different organizations in different parts of the country who have clusters of breastfeeding support groups i'm assuming that the breastfeeding support itself is based on on um what's current in terms evidentially current so you can't really can't you can't really brand breastfeeding support can you no it's the group that is branded it's it means it's got um you can go on a website and search for where your nearest one of these is i got it and it's is it run by the nct um, it's definitely associated with the NCT, but they're not all run by NCT breastfeeding counsellors. There's some run by midwives and breastfeeding counsellors from the other organisations as well. Very cool. And what's your role then? Um, well, part of the the um, the overarching baby cafe-ness of it all is having um, a set of kind of standards. So my role is visiting and checking that mothers are being greeted in a friendly way and so on. Oh, I got it. I, I, so not just standards around the breastfeeding support that's being offered, because we've already got baby friendly, haven't we? It's facilitated by people with a certain level of qualification. So, so t- in order to meet that standard of of good support, I, I like I like uh, that commitment to sort of like an excellent service. Well, the thing about it is because you need funding for all of these things, and if you've got something that can demonstrate an excellent service, then it makes it easier for commissioners to 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 justify yeah. paying money for them. No, no, no. I get that, and and uh, I mean, I've known you uh, now for what three years, almost mm-hmm. over, three, over years. three years. Anyway, I've known you for a while, and I I can't imagine a better person at doing that. What with your background and your experience and stuff, it does seem a good fit, doesn't it? Very good fit. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So there you go. That's what I'm busy doing. What are you busy doing? I'm still smarting after being. Um, uh, thoroughly uh what was the word I, I i how was i feeling after our last recording definitely put on the spot about the research around um rewind technique poor thing that's good that's what we go for right you asked me how i was i'm very well future ventura was very hot <laughs> did you get sunburned it was amazing we didn't take sun cream and it was boiling uh, thoroughly recommend Future Ventura at that time of year. So we wanted to talk about continuity of carer today, and I think this has kind of emerged over the last couple of episodes. 
as as a strong theme, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I, I, it's it's been a strong theme on and off as long as I've been a midwife, to be honest. Mm. So I had a chat with Michaela Marling, who is a newly qualified midwife. Um, but you know, every now and then we come across a, a midwife who's absolutely full of enthusiasm for a, a, a really hot topic, and this is her baby. And she's doing a lot of stuff on social media to develop a campaign to raise awareness of the importance of continuity of carer. And she's really keen on caseloading care. And um, I thought it would be interesting to listen to her. Hi, um, my name is Michaela Marling. I'm a newly qualified midwife and um, passionate about Uh, relationship-based continuity of carer. Um, I trained in London where I got to do part of my training with uh, an amazing team of uh, caseload midwives in South London Um, and this experience and uh, experience with an independent midwife in my first year really moulded me into the the type of midwife that I am and made me just really passionate about this this type of care and when I qualified I've saw a need for raising the awareness about what this model of care actually is for midwives and for, for women as well. Um, so I set up the Continuity Matters campaign in November and um, yeah, yeah, it's taken off. It's got a life of its own <laughs> um, now. Um, it's really been really popular um, and been shared all over the, all, all around the world. So it's really speaking to a lot of people. That's really exciting. I noticed it taking off. Um, so tell me about the model of care that you're advocating. Okay, so it's based on um, relationship-based m- model of care. So it's knowing your midwife uh, or midwives if they work collectively as a team um, throughout the when throughout your pregnancy, uh, during labour and birth, and then postnatally as well. So the um, the guidelines are that. A midwives work in a team of six and the women have a named midwife but knows that gets to know the other midwives as well so that when it comes to being when the woman's in labor and they have shared on calls um, that she knows whoever's turn up but whoever's going to turn up for um, her birth but um, there's all different ways of doing con- implementing continuity and it can include that model of care or some some um, teams are doing it where it's the same midwife throughout and the same midwife that attends the birth as well so it depends how people want to work it how teams f- facilitate that continuity different ways of doing it which is a really important thing for for people to be aware of I can never get my head around the logistics of it surely there needs to be at least two people so that one midwife can sleep sometimes yes yes I think that the is it neighborhood midwives they work or one-to-one midwives work as a buddy system so there's two so they share between two but then other models of care have six midwives um that's the the one that I worked in as a student um and they have they tend to they tend to go to the births of the women that they were the name midwife for it just seemed to a lot of the time seemed to work out like that it would work out that way so that that works out well with a team of six by the sound of it how is it for yeah. the, as a working life for the midwives it's a fantastic way of working I think midwives find it a lot more rewarding and 
actually experience a lot better work-life balance when they work in that in providing continuity. Uh, there's actually been some very recent research this month that's come out from Griffith University in Australia, looking at the emotional and professional well-being of uh, midwives, comparing those working in a model of care where they're providing continuity and those who are working um, shift in the hospital and found that the midwives working in this model of care where they're providing continuity were far less likely to experience burnout, had uh, increased job satisfaction and were were just a lot happier. So it's inherently rewarding to be able to give that kind of care to women. Yeah, it's what midwives, I think a lot of midwives report as being how what they signed up for, basically. Yeah. It's certainly what I signed up for. Is there a cost implication for health services in providing it in this way? There's a recent RCM publication that looks at implementing continuity of carer called Can Continuity Work For Us? And that's one of the things that it looks at in there um, about the, the money side of things and that it, there is an initial cost in doing it, but actually it it's it's not a short-term thing it's a long-term cost saving um because of what what it actually does they're reducing preterm birth um reducing stillbirth reducing a, a pregnancy loss at any stage reducing interventions you know the the, the long-term cost implications are, are, are going to be beneficial so it's an investment everybody in, in less medical care needed exactly yeah yeah and women are a lot happier with it as well. well they that feel... was my next question. What does it mean for women? I think having a known and trusted midwife um, means 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 uh, means a lot for women. And I think that's <laughs> it's a no-brainer question, isn't <laughs> <It's> it? it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there might sometimes be uh, you know personalities that don't match well. Yeah, yeah. But that's the same same with with anywhere. Um, but that's something that can be looked up within the team but presumably if you have happier and less stressed midwives then yeah relationships are easier to form anyway yes i would imagine so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I, I can't think of a downside is there any downside to this um i think from when it's been implemented previously the only down the, the downsides have been um, around burnout and all the things that now we've learned from um, and moved forward and which are preventing I think preventing midwives from wanting to work this way because they are struggling to see how it could work in a system that currently at the moment is perhaps overstretched um, and <laughs> understaffed and no, we are we we, <laughs> we desperately need more midwives we I think the profession is understaffed by about 3,500 midwives at the moment so um, that's probably the, the biggest difficulty with it is the is the understaffing and getting it to be getting it implemented whilst that's that's going on kind of that that's something that needs to be corrected at the same time so what sort of evidence is there Michaela so the evidence behind um, continuity of care dates back some time now. So the um, the first publication on continuity of care was uh, Changing Childbirth in 1993, uh, which was released by the Department of Health. And then this has since been built on um, in 2007, 2010. 
and then the National Maternity Review in 2016. Um, so the Department of Health has been recommending this, this model of care for quite some time now. And then it's also supported by internationally by the World Health Organization, who recommends a continuity of carer. Um, and also the trade unions, the RCM and the RCOG, and NICE guidelines as well. It's all it's all in there. <laughs> um, it's just the actual implementation of it that is where it seems to come to a, a kind of brick wall. But that's that is being worked on at the moment with the Better Birth Initiative, which hopefully will will see continuity of care implemented by I think it's twenty to twenty twenty one. They want up to. I can't remember what percentage, I should know that, um, <laughs> of women to have continuity of care. Um, and the important thing that they that's stated in the NHS guidance is that continuity of care includes intrapartum as well. Um, you can't say that you're um, providing continuity of care if you don't include that part of it. Birth trauma is a... Um, a huge issue in the UK at the moment. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw the, the previous um, blog that I posted up from a woman that I know um, sharing her harrowing birth story. I haven't seen it, but I'll, I'll look for it and post it on our Facebook. <clears throat> and she she felt if someone, if she'd been there with someone that she knew, she if her midwife knew her, um, that would have made a big impact on, on her care and how she felt and being able to voice uh, when she felt that things weren't being done the way that she wanted or were being done to her, really. There's a huge difference in what you can say to somebody Yeah, if you have yeah. that relationship. She said she just kind of, she just closed up and just felt like she was, the way she describes it, just like she's just she wasn't there she wasn't there was just people around her doing things to her without really asking for consent or realizing that she was not she was not herself she kind of closed up yeah and they didn't know her and didn't have that caring relationship no no that the same thing came up with um cat grant who we talked spoke to last oh, really? month and one of the specific things that she said is the fact that we i never saw the same midwife twice meant that nobody ever picked up my symptoms and picked no. up the predisposing factors that would have raised a flag about potential postpartum psychosis it's so it's yeah it's 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 devastating the amount of women who are affected affected by it. it's something like the birth trauma association is something like twenty thousand women suffer with post-traumatic stress because of because of their birth experience and that's huge 200,000 more suffering with trauma with PTSD symptoms in the UK like it's just it's I think it's it's diabolical that's um that's a thing I know there's going to be times where traumatic things happen um but I imagine a large portion of those are preventable and yeah I think having a known and trusted midwife and having someone by your side that knows you and can can advocate for you um is really important in addressing in addressing that. Given that we don't have that model of care in many maternity departments in the UK how can women best prepare for the experience of birth? I would say having a birth plan um looking at your options beforehand knowing and knowing what they are there's there's a lot of negativity around birth plans from 
from medical professionals as well, which I think is um, pretty terrible. But there's also an, an attitude around birth plans. So I'm, I'm an antenatal teacher, so I say, how are you preparing yourself? And somebody will say, well, we're, we're having a birth plan. But everybody has said to me, um, your birth plan is not set in stone. Don't, don't, don't set too much store in it. And I think that immediate lack of faith. I hate it when um, there's so much negativity around it because pers- personally, as a midwife, um, especially as a newly qualified midwife, if someone comes to me and they have a birth plan, I'm like, yes, <laughs> it really, it helps me to be able to, it gives me that extra um, extra tool to be able to really advocate for them and um, and help them to have the birth that they want and yet sometimes things might deviate from that but knowing what they wanted in the first place and how they wanted things to be can really help to support them it must give you a snapshot of them as a person as yeah, well in some exactly. ways. I mean it does, doesn't tell you their likes and dislikes but it, it gives you an idea of their attitudes to things that's a big part of continuity like if if you know your midwife already you kind of don't particularly you've got to know them over um over the period of your pregnancy you don't really perhaps even need a birth plan because they know you and they know your choices and they're the ones that have discussed it with you that's really interesting that you said that I'm, I'm quite pleased <laughs> <laughs> I always think birth planning is a good idea you're campaigning around this issue at the moment where where can people find out and what are you trying to achieve so um what I'm trying to achieve is to spread the word to midwives um, and try and help them to see how things have changed and that we've moved forward from the lessons that were learned back in 1993 um, when it were around changing childbirth and that this is such a, a positive way to work but also that it's not the only way to work and that we still need it's always going to need the core staff in the hospital but to to spread the word of how positive it is um and i'm doing that by sharing lived experiences of either working in this model of care or receiving this type of care i'm just sharing sharing information and evidence and lived experiences that's i think that was the most important part of this campaign is that the things that i was sharing were lived experiences because you can't argue with someone's experience if that's Mm. happened to them that's what that's what they've done that's you know you can't you can't say that didn't happen yeah and it was interesting I I know Louise Perkins mentioned this um when we um when she reported back from the birth trauma conference that you one of the messages coming out of that was that you can't define birth trauma for somebody they have to define it for themselves exactly yes Where's the best place for people to get involved? I'm on Facebook under the page is just called Continuity Matters, um, but also I have a website. Um, That's where all the posts are shared. And it's called continuitymatterscampaign.wordpress.com. So if there is anyone out there who has experienced this type of care, who wants to share their story with others, or if someone is working in this model of care um, in providing continuity of carer throughout all of pregnancy, birth, postnatally. Um, they want to share um, good practice with other people, then that would be fantastic. I've had quite a few contact me from um, different trusts around the UK who love this um, 
model of care and they love the idea of it and they just can't visualize how they can do it in their area so I'm hoping that through sharing others experiences of setting it up and how they went about it in different ways will help other people help other trusts to be able to then look at ways that might work for them and it's so important that you're doing this I really I mean I know it's already taken off and I'm hoping that we can contribute that to that in some small way so we'll share and share and share thank you for your time Michaela thank you so much so what do you think about um this whole idea of continuity of carer. I know we think this is a good thing. I like the way you use the word continuity of carer because, you know, way back uh, in 94, when Changing Childbirth came out, which was the report that, although it's tw- over 20 years ago, right, Baroness Cumberledge was the uh, chair for that report. And Changing Childbirth report really was saying loads of stuff similar to what Better Births is saying. Right. And straight after that, Changing Childbirth came out I newly qualified and I ended up in a caseload bearing project so me and a colleague Rocky Rocky May as it happens we had a caseload of women between us and we did on call work so when I was on call when I was on Rocky was off when Rocky was on I was off does that make sense yeah we had an 18% home birth rate wow and yeah it it rocked um lots of home birth underwater all the rest of it all of our care was done domiciliary uh, you know, in the home. Uh, sorry, I don't know why that was a bit man explaining, weren't it? Thanks. It was it was excellent. The only drawback, I would say, in many ways, was that we did long on calls. Yeah. You know, so it had a tendency to turn me into a binge drinker. You know, when you're off when you're off call, suddenly you think, oh god, I better drink. That's what Claire Harbottle was saying, wasn't it, when we uh, interviewed her? Well, when we had her on in Leeds. Yeah, I I think you know. Pe- one of the key things that made it work was that when we were uh, on call, if we didn't have any work to do, we weren't being called into the hospital to cover. Right. You know, we could manage our caseload how we wanted. So I might be on call, but I could be out with my family so long as I was contactable and, uh, you know, didn't travel too far. Yeah. You know, so it sounds like it was horrendous. Uh, but it, it wasn't too bad being on call 100 hours a week or something ridiculous, because a lot of that time your work was done and you had a, you could do other things. Very slowly, some midwives inside the scheme weren't enjoying the whole on call thing. So we started to talk. They started to talk about continuity of care as opposed to continuity of carer. Yeah. So better birth specifies carer. Yeah, it does. And I think that's a really good thing because it's it's a red herring to say if we're all singing from the same hymn sheet or guideline, there is a continuity of care. And frankly, that doesn't happen anyway. I think it's I think it's a rubbish idea because you could argue that the fragmented care that's going on at the moment, there is continuity of carer because everyone's following the NICE guidelines, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've spoken to a local woman recently who has very, very, very specific needs. And at every single appointment, she has to explain them. The thing about continuity of carer, though, and caseload bearing schemes and all of this kind of stuff, if you look at the data, outcomes are better, you know, cesarean section rates lower and all those kind of things. Sue Down, I think, says that if if continuity of carer, which has been studied extensively now, I mean, Dennis Walsh 
in many ways spent his whole career studying it. It's been studied a lot, so we know the outcomes are positive. Better birth makes it absolutely clear that uh, the outcomes are positive. Sue Down says that if continuity of carer was a medical intervention, you know, a drug or something like that, it would be considered unethical not to give every pregnant woman access to it. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the thing that it brought to my mind was um, there must be other cases of drugs that are proven effective that don't get given because of cost and things like that. Well, I'm th- yeah, I guess that in terms of cancer treatments and stuff like that. But what came to my mind was folic acid study that was that was going on. Do you remember fer- giving um, folic acid preconceptually and as early as possible in a pregnancy leads to a reduction in neural tubal defects, spina bifida? And when the study was being conducted, it got to a point where the cause and effect relationship between folic acid and the reduction in spina bifida was so profound that they had to stop the study and and make sure that everyone had it because people were getting placebo and they realized that actually this is having a profound effect on spina bifida rates. I mean, the tragedy is they did they did carry the study on in China, which is horrendous, I think. You know, the idea it's okay to do it in China, but not not here in the West. But that's another subject. So, I mean, given what Sue Down says, given what Better Births is saying, continuity of carer is the way to go. But what we're seeing politically on a big scale is hospitals are centralising. You know, underneath a paediatric unit or something, bringing everything together in order to make it more cost effective, you know, because we haven't got enough midwives to staff the units we've got, let alone uh, having standalone units and having people working in caseload bearing. So, you know, when, when we did this project in Leicester 20 odd years ago, the forerunner project was a project called Bumps and Bumps used to operate in Clarendon Park, the most affluent postcode in Leicester. And I remember thinking, how ridiculous is this? Because if you look at the data, continuity of carer potentially as a model has a bigger impact on the outcomes of lower socioeconomic groups, high instance of deprivation. So you're going to have an impact on uh, admission to neonatal units. You're going to have an impact on preterm labor. You're going to have an impact on all those all those uh, measures. The impact is going to be greater potentially. You know, not to mention non-English speaking communities, because, you know, we know that non-English speaking communities get a raw deal when it comes to the NHS. You know, women, often articulate UK based women who speak English as their first language often get a raw deal. Um, We hear stories every week, don't we? You know, and when you add non-English speaking as your first language, those women would benefit greatly from continuity of care. Yeah, that seems just self-evident doesn't it i think it would be good to get somebody for a future episode to talk to us about better births as a whole and i've got somebody lined up for that um but i've got the report i've got better births in front of me right now the document um and it's their second principle continuity of carer to ensure safe care based on a relationship of mutual trust and respect in line with the women's decisions and it, it, it basically recommends um, every woman should have a midwife who is part of a small team based in the community who knows them and can provide continuity all the way through. And that each team should also have an identified obstetrician, which I like the idea of a lot, um, yeah, who can work with their service. 
and then yeah. everyone can liaise together and it's all joined up and women don't have to repeat their story over and over again. What's stopping it happening is, I think, political. In what way? I said earlier um, about the way a lot of local policies are moving in the exact opposite direction from continuity of carer, moving towards centralised hospitals. You know, and a lot of the reasons given for that, certainly where I am, is that there's not enough people wanting to go to the standalone midwifery unit. Well, why is there not enough people wanting to go there? Well, because the advertising and the marketing, we've not invested in our information giving to the point where women realise that it's there and realise that actually the evidence supports them going there. So why why isn't the money available? That's up against the whole cultural and social um assumptions about birth being dangerous and why would you go to a freestanding midwifery unit when you're going yeah, to be 20 miles from the hospital should there be an emergency that's true but i don't think you can get away from the fact that whether we like it or not we talk about team teamwork in the nhs we talk about working together as a multidisciplinary team it, it, it still ends up with the medical profession leading it's hegemony by a different name. It's top-down leadership coming from a medically influenced um, professional. But do you think if more women asked for this style of care, though, then that that would change? Well, I think the only way, if I'm honest, and I'm open to challenge, I think the only way it's going to shift and change is from a grassroots movement. You know, from women and their partners saying, we want this. And that's where this cultural and social barrier steps in and says, well, actually, we're not going to ask for that in those kind of numbers because we've seen one born every minute and we've seen somebody die on call the midwife and we know that birth is dangerous. And so we would like to be in a hospital where the machines go beep, please. No, I got it. And I think there are evolutionary forces because certainly those that are in heterosexual relationships, as soon as you talk to a man... Uh, who's experienced in the world through a male neurophysiology, his response to stress, I would argue, so would some evolutionary biologists argue, that is different. His response to risk is different from a woman's. So the vast majority of men that I talk to, and I talk to them every week, as soon as you mention place of birth, their assumption is that hospital is definitely going to be the safest place. Yeah, that's all they know. To relearn that, particularly at, at the time when they they're needing to make these decisions is too hard well i think it's too hard and i thought we and in a way we have sort of like conflicting messages don't we jeremy hunt you know and his agenda let's assume that these folk that are pushing the whole birth safety agenda do you know there's a nationwide um program going on at the moment if a woman reports with two instances of reduced fetal movements she gets offered an induction is that right have you heard about that um, I haven't, no. It doesn't happen at your... It's not on my radar. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm saying I haven't Ask noticed it. Because because it is leading to, you know, increase in scanning and apparently an increase in the national induction rate. And what's driving it is this, uh, this movement to reduce um, stillbirth and stuff like that, which is laudable, right? Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that the people that want that to happen have a Machiavellian agenda. They just have an agenda based on how they perceive the evidence around risk. And at the moment, the power holders are dictating 
the agenda. This is why we've got all this evidence about continuity of carer, but we seem to have a general policy of consolidating services in one area. Mm. Yeah, that's what we're seeing. And, 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 not mu- and not enough midwives. So I had a call with Rebecca Doyle, and she offered to tell us a birth story. And she's had lots lots of babies, so she's full of experience. And she wanted to tell us about her two home births where continuity of care made a difference. Would you like to listen to that? Yeah, I want that. Come on, Rebecca. Let's hear you. I'm chatting to Rebecca Doyle, and she's got some amazing birth stories to tell us. So hi, Rebecca. Hi, Karen. So thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us and tell your story. Um, I say story singular, but it sounds like a, a long and complex and interesting sequence of, of events to tell me yes, about. Yes, it, it, it is really. Um, it could have been so different, but um, I do feel that it is it's a story that needs to be told, really. My story starts in 1990 when I gave birth to my first child. I'd left my nursing training to have her and I was almost 20 and feeling very scared and vulnerable but also very excited about birth and sadly it was a very traumatic birth. Um, I didn't feel supported emotionally to give birth. Um, Knowing what I know now probably my hormones were not supportive of the whole process and it was a very traumatic birth, physically, but um, more emotionally, really. I think that it took years to recover from the emotional damage done at that birth. Um, sadly, I lost my first child as well, about 19 days after she was born. She she sadly died. Um, so obviously there was grieving of her, but I feel that the the, the traumatic experience of birth took a lot of years to, to get past and it's um, it influenced my decision making about future births. So the next place where the story picks up is in 1992 when I was pregnant with my eldest son. The experience was very very different. We had um, a, a midwifery led unit at the time then. Sadly it's since been closed in our area but um, the midwife that I met, it was almost like a completely contrasting experience to the the first time. She was supportive, empathic, um, very sensitive to my needs, having known that I'd lost my previous child. And I, I really just felt safely held um, for the whole experience. And I had a very straightforward, wonderful birth supported by staff that really cared so it was a a completely different experience and um, my son now is a strapping big lad six foot two you know healthy you know everything was was great that must have been quite healing yeah it it was a deep deeply healing um, almost tangible really because it it healed me emotionally but it also healed um the sense of loss that I'd experienced before, it almost set straight in ways which it, it, which are hard to explain to anybody else that's not experienced birth trauma. Um, it started to create 
a different memory for me of birth, which desperately needed replacing from what had happened before. So it was it was incredibly healing and um, it really made me think again about the midwifery experience and the importance of being emotionally safe during that very vulnerable time, really. And what I would say about the midwife, Anne, it was that she... She wasn't very hands-on, really. She she just sat quietly in a corner, but I knew that she was there, and I knew that she wasn't going to leave, and that the shift wasn't going to change, and you know I'd have somebody else. It was it, she was just there. So fast forwarding then on to 1994, and I was pregnant again with with another boy, and um, I'd laboured early at 38 weeks, so. I'd gone into hospital and the labour was quite quick, but the shift changed and I got another midwife. And as soon as she came in the door, I thought, wow, there's Anne. So immediately my any anxiety that I'd felt just completely diminished and he was born within minutes. It was almost like we were waiting for, <laughs> for a friendly face and, and he was born. Wonderful birth. Again, it was in hospital because... Um, the midwifery-led unit had been closed down. But in that situation, it, it didn't matter. I mean, I'd, I'd fought to keep the um, midwifery-led unit open, but the decision had already been made. We'd, we'd signed petitions and things, but they'd, they'd closed it down. But in that experience, it was actually the midwife that made the difference. Her support and her care. And I already trusted her and she already knew me. And it made such a massive difference. I didn't have to tell my story to anybody else because she she knew me. So it was it was quite profoundly wonderful. And and then that was two. Then I was almost like counting in my mind. And I always knew that I wanted a huge family anyway. So I was like, well, that's two good birth experiences. Now perhaps if I were to labour at home next time, because I was already thinking about the next one by the time Joel was born. <laughs> If the midwives in the hospital can be that supportive, perhaps I could get the same care at home. So I think that cemented my mind and that I was going to have the next baby at home. So fast forwarding on then to 1997, I was expecting a girl this time. Very empowered in the whole experience. I didn't ring the midwife until I was well into labour and um, the midwife arrived it wasn't Anne, but it was a, a wonderful midwife that I'd developed a relationship with. I already knew her. So you'd met She'd her? Introduced, yeah, I'd met her. And I felt that she knew my story. And she'd, she'd come and visit me every couple of weeks towards the end of pregnancy. So I, I felt quite confident with her. Interestingly enough, she, she was a really experienced midwife, but she hadn't done any home births. And I was a little bit, I was a bit of a question mark in my mind about that. But when it actually came to the the day of birth, she was there, she was wonderful and had the best ever birth. It was just remarkable. So we, you were each other's first home birth? Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the profound things was that after the whole experience was over, she kept coming to the house, even when I knew that she wasn't on shift. And she actually said to to me, thank you for making my experience so good. And I'd never considered that actually 
it affects everybody when a birth goes well. It affects everybody that's involved, not just the mother. Mm. Um, and, I, and I really feel that these experiences need to be told in our community. So I became very pro-birth then. I was telling everybody, you know, about this home birth. And some of my friends went on to have, have home births after hearing my story. So then um, the marriage broke down, sadly, after, after that. And um, in 2000, I was remarried and I was pregnant again, surprisingly. And it was the, the time of the fuel crisis. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was quite tricky, really, because I was confident with birth by this, this point, feeling very empowered, I have no fears whatsoever, but I, we had a wonderful team of community midwives and it all of a sudden became apparent that it didn't really matter because the fuel crisis had had a, a huge impact on on the local state of affairs with people actually being able to get from A to B. And I knew that they were prioritising nurses and midwives, but there was no guarantee that my midwife would be able to get to me. So even though I'd met the team... I didn't really know what was going to happen. But this morning I went into labour, um, early hours of the morning, and I rang. I rang the maternity unit and they said, oh, we'll we'll send her out. And I don't think they said who it would be. So imagine my delight when down the path comes Anne, <laughs> who delivered my first two sons. And it was just wonderful, really, because she, she'd not done many home births either. She was just on... I think they call it rotation you know when they just go into the community but then they, they might be having their time in the community just at that time but because of the fuel crisis she was the nearest midwife that could get to me it just turned out to be her so absolutely wonderful experience and um, again she actually rang us up after the birth and, and said to my husband that was just a, a wonderful experience and um I'll never forget it. So it was lots of laughter, lots of humour, lots of... Um, it was so relaxed, you know, and my husband was making cups of tea and that's the first of the four children that we had together. So she's she's now 17. I really think that if it's accidental and it has such an impact on somebody's life that's had a traumatic experience, how wonderful it could be if there could be some more continuity woven into the system yeah so you've got really great examples of where it's worked out so positively and it's been almost transformative for for you and the midwife yeah yeah it, it really was yeah I, I can't rate it highly enough whether a woman decides to give birth in hospital or at home the continuity makes an, an incredible difference and not to have to retell your story to multiple people to feel that you've already developed a relationship with somebody at such a time when it you are so vulnerable. Mm. There's nowhere to hide, is there, when you're labouring? No, no, ab absolutely not. You need people around you who you absolutely trust. Yeah, yeah. And and knowing what I do now about the hormonal impact of, um, of the labouring hormones on the whole experience, it's certainly all that oxytocin that would have been flowing through my veins when I was just so supported and felt so safe such a contrast to feeling so stressed really and 
no wonder it was traumatic my first birth because how could it be anything else you know so i just um i do feel very strongly about not only home birth but i know that the research points to um the continuity of care being the, the safest really yeah and i think it goes beyond just the physical safety and i've i've witnessed that really the emotional safety the um the protection from postnatal depression and trauma it's it has a has a huge impact it had a huge impact on me and i'm i'm one of the very few fortunate ones amongst my friends i don't think i know anybody that's had the same midwife more than once which is sad really particularly when i had my last two children i hadn't even met the midwives during pregnancy at all and so then it's very much a case of right let's make this relationship quick Right, so what you'd learned from your previous births, you were able at least to bring that positive learning into a new situation? Yeah, and I and I did feel as well, because they knew that I'd birthed at home and, and they knew what my birth preferences were, that also changed the experience. I had a child in between, after my second daughter was born, I had another child, I had to birth him in hospital because he was he was early. But then the next time I planned another home birth and um, it all went a little bit awry at the end because um, my waters went and they they were tinged. So I thought, well, I best go and check out whether baby's distressed and I didn't come home. Mm. But I did feel that the staff, because they knew they took into consideration that I'd I'd wanted a home birth and they'd looked at I, I really did feel respected. And that made a difference. Yeah. And by this time, I already knew how to birth a baby and I knew... I should think you what did. I wanted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so my last baby was very quick and I was in hospital for him as well. Um, by that stage, I'd, I'd, I don't think it would have mattered too much, but um, it was so quick that there, there wasn't any time. <laughs> there was no time to build a relationship, really. <laughs> So um, barely time to shake hands. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was immense. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that's my story really. Wow. So yeah. so the impact of um, not only having a relationship with the midwife through the birth and through the pregnancy and through the birth, but actually f- through multiple births. Yeah, was huge for absolutely. you. I, I do feel very very blessed to have had. The experience that I had, um, it's changed my my thoughts about midwifery. We regularly talk about it. It's it's in the it's embedded in our family narrative now. This this birth, we regularly talk about that day, and the midwife who arrived, and it was just like an old friend. And the ripple effects of that. I mean, my my daughters have both grown up knowing that they were born at home, and hopefully that knowledge will be useful for them when their time comes i hope it's it's part of our story and i think these stories need to be told yeah well thank you for telling it to us and sharing it with all hundreds of strangers <laughs> you're welcome it's <laughs> brilliant thanks rebecca hey karen what, what's inspired you this month um, well, do you remember we had snow the other day, or was that while you were away? Uh, yeah, we did have snow. I've seen some snow. On the snow day, um, obviously we're all 
um, either out getting really, really cold or stuck in the house. And um, there was a lot going on on NCT Practitioners Facebook group where th- there's always a, a general chat happening. It's like our water cooler. And somebody shared the new mom achievement stickers, um, which were just a, f- a few little round graphics that look like award badges. You know, like the sort of sew, sew on badges you get when you're in the Girl Guides. And <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I remember those years. One of them says, drank hot coffee. And one of them says, took a shower. And one of them says, knew what day it was. And <laughs> they really tickled me and they inspired me. And I, I um, made some and added a few. And my 11-year-old drew the pictures in the middle to illustrate them. And I used them in an antenatal session to discuss um, adjusting to postnatal life so that's that was what inspired me very good well i've got two things yeah all right go on one is uh, it's kind of very personal in as much as my uh, daughter my well, st- she's my stepdaughter is due in april and um i i've been very impressed with uh, how she's accessing information and stuff like that, although she is a white, middle-class, educated woman. Um, but she did some NCT classes up in Liverpool and had a, had a very, very, very good experience and felt that the uh, content of that programme that she did, I don't know which one of your, which one of the NCT stuff she did, but it kind of balanced really well with the stuff that she had heard at the hospital. So I found that kind of inspirational, not just because I work with you, but you know, but I've been involved with the NCT for over 20 years and I've always um, had uh, high regard for them. And it, it's kind of cool that they're out there doing that kind of work still after all this time and uh, that what they're delivering is of such a high quality. So that's that. Yeah. What's your other thing? Uh, the other thing is a book, unbirth related, but it's a book by a chap called Michael Singer. And it's called The Surrender Experiment. And I, I suppose you call it a, a spiritual book in some ways. Um, but for me, as I'm reading it, it, it's kind of challenging me in the context of there being no such thing in my experience as free will. Right. The idea that I actually exercise my will and make things uh I, the idea that I'm controlling my my life, um, the book suggests, is an illusion, and my experience suggests something very similar. Oh, that's very and I'm I, and I'm finding the book um, inspirational. Okay, I've put it on Facebook for people to have a look at. It's non-birth related, uh, but, but of course, it's uh, you can't separate who you are as a person from the work you do, uh, from the service you offer. But it's, it's interesting for people to read around more generally anyway. I think that's all we've got time for today. So let us know what you think on Facebook or Twitter. And I think on our next episode, if we can get the right people in place, we'd like to talk about Maternity Voices Partnerships. Do you reckon that would be interesting, Mark? Yeah, what are they? That's what we'll be asking. Oh, are they different from maternity liaison groups? The, they are a sort of new evolution of the maternity services liaison committees, yes. Oh, rebranding, right? If you like. <laughs> and you can find us at facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, just pause it Go to iTunes and leave us a review. Go on. 
you're still listening no pause it and leave us the review thanks for listening it's goodbye from me bye <laughs> bye you've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris the news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page facebook.com slash Sprogcast and don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGCAST at the checkout. <laughs>